Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, January 5th, 2020. The sheer IDs for Friday, January 3rd, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,918, that's 13918. For the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,920, that's 13920. This morning, A Vision for You presents our primary purpose. Overeaters Anonymous 5th Tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. What is our responsibility as individuals, individual groups, and OA as a whole? Our chief responsibility to the newcomer is an accurate and adequate presentation of the program. The big book states we have recovered and have been given the power to help others. No matter how different our own personal concerns, we are all bound together by one common responsibility. Under the compulsions of self-preservation, duty, and love, our society has concluded that it has but one high mission, to carry the OA message to those who don't know there's a way out. And of course, We must resist the assumption that since God has enabled us to do well in one area, we are destined to be a channel of saving grace for everybody and everything. Unless we curb our individual desires and ambitions, we can damage the group. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The goal of this program is a spiritual awakening that will change our lives, that will produce a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating, to make us recover, to enable us to be happy, joyous, and free. If we are, our primary purpose is to carry this message we need to be reminded what a powerful message it is. The existence of the fellowship depends on it. Lives depend on it. Joining us to speak about our primary purpose individually, as individual groups, and as OA as a whole is Lori C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Winnipeg, Canada. Lori is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, carrying the message of recovery whenever and wherever he can. And it's with great, privi- great privilege and honor to welcome Lori to the line. Welcome, Lori. Lori, star one to unmute. Okay, let me work on getting Lori back on the line. Thank you for your patience, everybody. Lori, try star one at this point to unmute. 
Ah, good. It was telling me that my feature okay. wasn't available. Okay. Welcome, Lori. All right. It's always a pleasure to have you on the line. Sorry for the tech challenges. No problem. Thank you so much, Leah. I, um, uh, you, you put it so well that I'm reminded of a, a very famous uh, writer on how to write who used to give lectures at a university. And when he came to the lecture entitled Omit Needless Words, he would get up to the lectern and he would say, omit needless words, omit needless words, omit needless words, and then he'd leave and, uh, and say no more. And I almost feel that because what you, what you said in your introduction is basically what I wanted to say, but I, I guess I have to speak a little bit longer. Um, I, wanted, I, I want to dedicate um, this to a good friend of mine in OA who passed away uh, last week, uh, Bertie. Uh, w, who was a longtime member of the Board of Trustees and, and who gave himself uh, to uh, OA and to another 12-step program with his entire life. Um, it's quite appropriate to, to invoke his name because he was a man of great humility who was, by that humility, uh, a constant giver and never a taker, never, ever a taker. You would speak to him and say, how are you? And his answer would be, it's not important about how I am. How are you? How are you doing? And his dedication to helping others uh, was remarkable. And he leaves an incredible legacy. Um, and uh, I, I will personally miss him very much. Um, this is, this is a, an important topic, our primary purpose is, as Leah said, uh, we start off with Tradition 5, which is the primary purpose of every group. Only one purpose, and that is to carry the message uh, to those who still suffer. What is that message? Well, step 12, as Leah pointed out, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message. What is the message? A spiritual awakening resulting specifically from the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. What is a spiritual awakening? Well, that's the promise of step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. What do we need sanity for? That's the whole point. What is the message of recovery that gives us the sanity? Um, and I want to start with that. I want to start with a, a brief um, talk about uh, what has been called and what was called in the early days of AA, the double whammy. Uh, this double whammy is absolutely essential in how to carry the message to those who still suffer, because it is the hook. It is the definition of what addiction is. It was developed by Dr. William Silkworth, uh, who was a um, a mind person, he was sort of like a neurosurgeon, neurologist, and psychologist all combined, who worked with thousands and thousands of alcoholics uh, at a clinic uh, in uh, uh, New York. And uh, Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, was um, uh, went there, an inmate of the clinic uh, um, on, on at least three occasions. Um, Dr. Silkwith developed a theory that alcoholism, and he was only looking at alcoholism, but this theory extends to all other addictions in, in my experience, and certainly to mine, 
uh, that the problem of the addict was not simply a problem of willpower, of mental control. Uh, it, it also had to include and did include a physical component, an aspect where the body was taking control of the mind uh, so that the mind could not exert its willpower. Uh, the analogy is, is like breathing or like uh, holding your breath. You can do that for a length of time, and depending on your, uh, your physical abilities um, uh, or, and your genetic makeup, uh, you may be able to hold your breath for a long time or a short time, but that long time is never going to be that long before your body will ultimately say, I need to breathe, and I'm going to force my body to breathe. I'm going to force myself to breathe whether or not you can control me. Um, and, and the body breathes. And the same with uh, blinking, the same with the heart. Um, you cannot control your body in certain areas. And the doctor came to the conclusion that alcoholics, unlike normal people, what he called normal people, well, he called them normal men, but we'll call them normal people, uh, alcoholics had something different about their bodies that meant that when they started to drink, their bodies wanted more. And that came to the point that their body said, give me more, I need it, and their willpower failed because if alcohol was available to them, they would take it because their bodies forced them to do that. Um, I rejected that notion within OA for about seven years. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe that my body was different. I wanted to believe what every diet I had ever been on told me, that my body was normal, that it was just a matter of eating moderately, that I could eat anything I wanted. My problem was I ate too much, and I just had to learn how to control my quantities. And once I controlled my quantities, I could eat anything I wanted. <coughs> Excuse me. So believing that, uh, as I did during all my diet phases, uh, before I joined OA, and with, for the first seven years in OA, I simply dieted, worked the steps, felt great, and then once I reached my goal weight, took back the foods that I had given up in order to lose the weight, the waste calories, the comfort calories, the enjoyable calories, and found myself within weeks or months back to gaining weight and feeling completely helpless. Um, and I didn't see the correlation between those two things. I just thought I was failing in the program. Um, I, I want to believe that I could eat anything in moderation. And I, I was in a position where I knew that I was failing, but I didn't know why. Apropos of that, I was living in a complete fog as to what I should be doing. I believed in the program. I believed in 12 steps. I had friends who had recovered. I knew the big book, even in those days. I read it. I studied it. I memorized portions of it. I knew a lot about AA history. And I would speak at meetings, even though I was gaining weight and even though I 
was clearly not walking the walk. And members of OA would ask me how I was, and I would say, I'm fine. And they would say, oh, that's great. We love to hear you talk. You talk so well, you know, and just keep coming back. It works. And uh, I kept coming back, and nothing was working. One day, the shyest woman in the room came up to me and said, how are you? I said, fine, just as I had said fine to everyone else who asked me how I was. And she looked me in the eye, and she got really close to me. And with a very loving but very clear statement, she said to me, I mean really. And at that moment, she told me later that she had spent two or three weeks in prayer before she confronted me in that way. At that moment, I knew I was doomed. I knew I was going to go back to what I had been. Well, I was already back to where I had been, except I was also going to a lot of meetings. <laughs> but I was, I was gaining weight, and I was dying. And she said to me, you need help. I said, no, I said to her, I need help. I, I, I'm in terrible shape. I confessed that. And she sat down and began to work with me. And she worked with me so hard. Now, she did not know the big book as well as I did, and she did not have this notion of the allergy of the body that I'm going to be speaking about in a minute. But she gave me a sense of re-examining where I was because I was in a state of despair. And um, I should say, and the reason, another reason I mentioned Bernie, is that her action in confronting me was an example of what Bernie used to talk about all the time. He used to say, Honesty without compassion is cruel, but compassion without honesty can kill. And that's what was happening to me in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. People were compassionate. They liked me, maybe they loved me, but they never confronted me with honesty and love and compassion. And this woman had done that. She had confronted me with all the love at her command, but it was a confrontation and it was an honest confrontation. And without her, I, don't, I would never have had the kind of recovery that I've uh, had the privilege and the miracle of having uh, over the last, uh, over 26 years. Uh, shortly after uh, she was working with me over a period of time, I was obviously looking better and doing something better. Uh, I began, I was asked to sponsor a man who'd been in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, for over 15 years, been sober, and who had studied the book as a set of directions. And he and I began to study the book together. He hadn't recovered. I hadn't recovered. I was on, on a path of recovery, but not really in any good way because I was still sort of dieting. And we started to read the doctor's opinion from the big book. And the doctor's opinion is that section of the big book, it's just, be, for those of you who are new to OA, it's just before the first chapter, before Bill's story, it's called The Doctor's Opinion. It contains a lengthy examination of the theory of the double whammy. Most of it deals with the first part of the double whammy and then other chapters of the big book deal with the other part of the double whammy. The first part of the double whammy is that there's something abnormal about the body. And that's the idea that we engage and indulge in certain foods, certain eating behaviors, 
without being able to stop them once we start. This inability to stop once we started. The whole thing for me, it was overeating. For others, it may be undereating. This whole thing of engaging in the behavior or eating the food or eating things containing certain ingredients or mixtures of ingredients. And this idea of saying, I want to stop, I want to stop. Oh, the next moment I'll stop. I'll stop just the next time or the next time. Uh, for me, it was eating gallons of ice cream or eating huge amounts of um, uh, potato chips or French fries where my, my hand would be bringing the food to my mouth and I would be saying, this will be the last one. No, the, the, the next one will be the last one. The, the, the next one will be the last one. And the hand kept coming to the mouth. Now, just as I can hold my breath for a couple of seconds anyway, uh, it didn't happen absolutely every time. But it did happen over a period of time all the time. In other words, I may have been able to stop if someone was watching me and then start again a few minutes or a few hours later. But in the end, all I was doing was concentrating on my overeating. So that's the first half of the double whammy, that the body is so constructed, of an addict is so constructed, that it can't stop once it's started. And if I look back at my early times, I was able to stop uh, temporarily, more often than not. And as I got older, I was able to uh, stop temporarily less often. Um, and uh, so it wasn't really, it, it was the body that was telling me that it wanted more. This is true for the under eater as well. I, and and I, I will let under eaters tell their stories. Um, but that is not my real problem because I knew the foods that caused me to overeat. It wasn't radishes and it wasn't even carrots. You know, it, it might've been radishes or carrots dipped in something, but it wasn't uh, those things. It was certain kinds of foods. And in no way, because we are an umbrella 12-step program, it's not one particular ingredient that everyone agrees on. It's not like Alcoholics Anonymous where it's a single substance ingredient, alcohol in any form, or a single behavior uh, like uh, Gamblers Anonymous, gambling in any form. It's a combination of eating behaviors, a combination of foods and food ingredients that are unique to the individual. There may be a lot of overlap, but what I may eat, I can eat without getting these cravings. Another person cannot. And vice versa, there are people who can eat things I cannot eat. Um, so uh, we, we have to work that to ourselves. I'm not going to go into that in detail. That's all developing a plan of eating. But if that were my only problem, if I knew that eating, for me, eating butter would cause me to continue to want more and more, and I'd be eating a lot of once I started with butter, I'd go to ice cream. And once I went to ice cream, I'd go to, to, um, to uh, uh, deep fried uh, salty foods. Uh, if I knew that that would happen and I was the same human being, I would say, well, I guess I just won't eat these things. Why would I eat anything that would cause me all the pain that I've had from the compulsive eating I've done over the years? It would be stupid. It would be insane. So I guess I just won't do it. Well, I mean, there are people who can do that, but I can't. And that's the other aspect of the double whammy. It's the mind problem. And the mind problem is as simple as I can't stop myself from starting. My mind finds an excuse 
to go back to the ingredients, the foods, the behaviors that I had given up. It says at one point or another, it's okay for you to do that. And it can come up with any excuse that seems right at the moment. And that excuse can range from the deeply emotional reasons that many of us can easily identify. I'm so sad. I have had horrible things happen to me in my life. Um, something has just happened to me that is just horrible. Uh, I want to celebrate. I mean, these are excuses that why am I so lonely? Why, why do people not talk to me? I, I need comfort from somewhere. I mean, these deeply emotional reasons that we talk about so much in, in, in OA as to why we go back. But they can also be as stupid as, oh, they made it for me. Uh, it's really healthy because it's got uh, it's non-GMO or it's gluten-free and why can't I have it? Um, uh, I've been good for you know a year, a month, uh, a day, an hour, a second, and I deserve it. Um, uh, I'll never be able to have this food again. I mean, these are stupid reasons. They aren't deeply emotional. They're just stupid. And the mind is always ready to come up with one of them that seems right at that particular moment. So I can't stop from starting. So my double whammy is once I start, I can't stop and I can't stop from starting. So that explains all the yo-yo dieting I've been on in my life. That explains why the theory that all the diets I had, um, that moderation, moderate eating was, uh, was all I had to do. I could eat anything as long as I ate it moderately. That explains why that didn't work. It really fits with my experience. And once I began to study the big book and study the, um, the discussion in there about this double whammy, they don't use the word in the big book, but it was used by uh, Dr. Silkworth. Once I began to study that and accept that there was something different about my body and understand the mind problem, I began to understand what the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous actually promised me. What the 12 steps say is that in order to get rid of my mind problem that always sends me back, I need a spiritual awakening. And a spiritual awakening, as Leah said, is defined in the appendix on spiritual experience in the last few pages of the big book, referred to in the text of, uh, of the big book, and that is a personality change sufficient to overcome my addiction. That's the, the bare definition of a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome my addiction. And that overcoming is purely in the mind. Nothing happens to the body. The body continues to be triggered by those things that trigger it. And uh, which, as I've said, are individual to, to each one of us, but you know, with a lot of overlap, probably. So that double whammy can be overcome by getting rid of one side of the vicious circle, the side of the mind. And the big book promises us that when we work the steps, and by the time we finish step nine, we will feel neutral. Our minds will no longer persuade us to go back. I'm sure many of you have heard this before, and I'm not going to dwell on it, but it's, an, it's essential for a discussion of how we carry the message. 
So the miracle is, and I've had this for over 26 years, it'll be 27 years in May, um, is that I can look at all the foods that people bring to the house or, or, or bring to a meal or order at a restaurant and not want them. And Christmas, uh, the holiday season is a very good opportunity for me to reflect on how wonderful that miracle is um, because I can remember what it used to be like. I can remember people bringing certain kinds of cookies, shortbread in, into the house and arguing about who makes the best one and my having to experience my doing taste tests to make sure which was the best. And of course, I couldn't remember one taste from the next after the third one. So I'd have to repeat the experiment until I finished the boxes. I remember that very well. But now things like shortbread, yeah, they're in the fridge. My wife will have one of them, enjoy it, and I can look at her and enjoy her enjoying it and not want any of it. And I can do that with all kinds of other foods that people bring that I used to want to eat and now have no interest in eating. I do know that if I did eat them, one of them, my body would say, oh, I'm home, I want more. I want more and more and more until I would go back to what I had been over 26 years ago. I know that. Now, that's the double whammy. Can't stop once I've started, can't stop from starting. That's the solution, spiritual awakening, which will get rid of the mind uh, excuses so that I can stop from starting. That's the key. I can stop from starting. I don't start. I just don't start because once I start, I know I can't stop. Given that solution, it is now my job to carry that to others. I am a person who works the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. And the big book says half step, half measures avail us nothing. Well, 11, 12 measures avail us nothing. I could work all the steps and I could do my amends and I can continue to pray and I can continue to do inventory. But if I do not follow the 12th step, I will not keep what I have. Uh, I've heard a great AA speaker say that uh, the 12-step programs are full of paradoxes. You, you, you can't succeed until you admit you're a failure. You know, in order to, to, um, to find a solution, you have to admit that you can't solve the problem. That's step one. And step two. And in order to keep what you have, you must give it away. You cannot keep that which you keep. You have to give away that's what you have to keep. And that's a tremendous paradox. But that's the fact. That's what step 12 is all about. It's all about this notion that in order to keep what we have, we must give away. Now, there are many different kinds of reasons. There are many different reasons why we have to give away this message of recovery. Uh, Dr. Bob, in, 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 in uh, his... Uh, in his uh, 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 talks and, and in his uh, own experience, uh, Dr. Bob's Nightmare, which is right after the first 164 pages of the big book, uh, gives four reasons uh, for why uh, he has to give it away. Uh, he says, uh, sense of duty, uh, page 181, uh, sense of duty, 
It is a pleasure because in so doing, I'm paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. I mean, one of, one of our, our wonderful speakers in the vision for you, when he gets to step 12, he says, you owe, you owe, you owe. And that's true. I owe so much to people who gave, helped me find my recovery. And the last reason is because every time I do it, Dr. Bob says, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. So the incredible importance of giving away what I have is part of the essence of this program. It is something that accounted for YAA became so popular relatively quickly. As soon as people heard about it, um, uh, people began to come to meetings and then it began to spread like wildfire because they would meet people who had to give away the message, who would do anything in the world to carry the message to someone else, who would travel long distances, who would stay up all night, who would take people to uh, rehab centers and detox centers and hospitals, who would stay up with them until they got over their, uh, their uh, uh, pink uh, elephants, their delirium tremens. These are people who knew that their lives depended on carrying the message to someone else. And in a, in a way, we, we don't grow as much. And, and if I, I, it, it's got to be, one of the reasons has to be that we don't have people, enough people, I guess, who either carry the message or know how to carry the message. And so I want to talk about that. Uh, the big book is the message, uh, the original message. It has an organization that is designed as a textbook to carry the message to those who still suffer. It was designed to carry the message to those who still suffered, who did not have available to them any individual person who had recovered. And so it is a textbook for those who uh, who, need, uh, who need to have the message carried to them and who need to know how to carry the message to others. So it starts off with an incredible amount of space devoted to the problem. It starts off by describing uh, uh, the kind of person an alcoholic is and analyzing how that alcoholic uh, remains in the uh, vicious circle of the double whammy. It spends a lot of time on that. And that's because telling the story and eventually analyzing that story to show this double whammy, this can't stop once you started and can't stop from starting, is essential to make certain that a person knows exactly what they are getting into when they come to the 12-step program. That that person is in fact really a compulsive eater or an addict of some kind, but in our case, a compulsive eater who is suffering and not a person who thinks that a good diet will get them right or a person who thinks it's a little bit more willpower or a person who says, well, I need group support. You know, I just need, I need people around me to help me sort of exert my own willpower. People, and that, that may be true for a lot of people. There may be people who don't need Overeaters Anonymous. There may be people who only need support groups. Uh, 
who just need to be in a group and to and weigh every week and uh, and say, well, I've kept my weight up. Good job. Good job. You know, and, and and those people don't need us because they don't need to have a spiritual awakening, which gives them a personality change, which allows them, which gives them the miracle of their mind not sending them back to the food. They don't have a mind that keeps sending them back to the food. They just need a little bit of peer support. And there are groups that do that, both for-profit and non-profit, who provide that kind of support. Uh, There may be people who can eat anything and just need to be told, this is the reasonable amount that you need. You can't eat anymore. And they say, oh, 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 I only need four ounces of protein or four ounces of meat or or something like that. I, I was eating 16 ounces. Now I know I'll just have four. And they go through life. And they don't have any physical reaction to the amount of food they're eating. Oh, you mean I can't have four scoops of ice cream? I can only have a half a scoop of ice cream a week? Okay, I'll have a half a scoop of ice cream. And their body doesn't say, oh, you're giving me some ice cream. I want more. I want more. Well, there are people who don't have the allergy of the body or that, that abnormal condition of the body. And there are people who may not have the mind problem. They keep sending them back. They don't need a 12-step program. And it, it's very often the case that people join OA thinking that what they're getting is a support group or a diet group or some combination of that, which is available to them in many other forms uh, in this world. They, they join OA and they continue to come because people don't know the message that they have to carry. So the big book provides very specific instructions. Once you've recovered, once you're in the position of, of, um, of uh, having to carry the message to others, uh, the big book provides specific instructions in the chapter Working with Others, which starts on uh, page uh, 89. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm, I'm going to summarize them uh, and uh, talk about them in... in, in some detail at various points. There are certain aspects that I I want to emphasize as opposed to others. But I do want to start on page 89 with the promises. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other uh, alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. And these promises have come true for me and for countless uh, others uh, in OA and in other tw- and millions in uh, in other twelve step programs, these are true promises. Uh, but but think about that. Working with someone else, what does it do for me? Well, it gives me a sense of purpose. It makes me harmonize. It gives me harmony with my own sense of my own sort of being, who I am, my deepest values. It 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 is part of giving that takes the best of what being a human being can be. But on a very practical level, it reminds me of what I used to be like. If I tell my stories, 
And I talk about all the eating I've done in my life, the compulsive eating I've done. And I remind myself the depths of despair that I used to go through, the weight that I reached, my inability to move in the way that I used to be able. Well, I, I was actually I was fat all my life, so I don't remember ever moving well. The you know my 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 inertia, my isolation, my sense of, of of not being worthy of being loved, even though there are people around me who are more than willing to give that love. Uh, my my sense of, of not being able to love properly because I felt so guilty and so dirty and so unable to be worthy of who of uh, the person I wanted to be. When I tell my story, I remind myself of what I used to be, and that sense of urgency remains with me. If I don't re- remind myself of what I used to be, it's so easy to be complacent. To be around food and not to want it, a great feeling. It feels like a miracle the first day and the second day and the third day. But after 26 years, I can take it for granted. And I do take it for granted. If I don't tell my story to someone else, taking it for granted means that sooner or later I say, well, it's been a great ride. I haven't had, you know, this flavor of ice cream for a long time. And, well, there's a new flavor out. I've never had it before. Maybe I'll have some. Maybe I'll have some. So that whole sense of telling the message to someone else is what keeps me in this constant state of urgency. I have to keep active within the 12-step program. I have to keep what I have by giving away what I used to have and what I've achieved uh, through the miracle of the 12 steps. So the big book goes on and it gives instructions about um, how to find someone because this was meant for people who would not have meant, uh, who would not have necessarily been able to meet anyone who had already recovered. So um, how to find that person. And on page 90, talks about, you know, you meet with a family, you meet with a doctor, something like that. And uh, you don't meet with the person until he is, uh, it's always in the he in the big book, but uh, until they are, um, at least beginning to want to be to quit for good. On page 90, it says, if he says yes, if he would go to any extreme to quit for good, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. And, you know, when you think about the audacity, the, the, the courage, in 1939, when the longest um, uh, period of sobriety in, in all of AA, there were approximately 100 people by the time this book was published. The longest period of sobriety was about four years. That was Bill, uh, December of 1934. The, the book was published in April of 39, so you can do the math. They, um, and many of them sober for only a few months, and, and the person described in this chapter sober maybe for only a few days. As a person who has recovered, this, is, this shows the great faith people had who wrote this book in the in the spiritual change that would come over people once they work the steps and the steps work they give you a personality change they give you what's with uh, a spiritual uh, awakening and therefore you have recovered from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body as the big book says so his attention should be drawn to you as a person has recovered you should be described to him as one of a fellowship who as part of their own recovery try to help others and we'll be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. 
you're making yourself available. You're being described as someone whose who's avocation is, who wants to carry the message as part of my recovery to help someone else. In order for me to keep my recovery, I must help someone else. That's how you're described. And then they talk about in pages uh, 91 uh, through um, 96, uh, 95, uh, how to carry the message of this person. I won't go into, into the greatest of details there, but basically, if you read pages 91 to 95, you will see that the big book says, tell your story as we have told our story. Talk about your drinking behaviors, in the case of the alcoholic, in my, my eating behaviors, my eating episodes. Um, talk, talk about the desperation I began to feel. Uh, talk about it in a way that it begins to become clear that I have a twofold problem. I can't stop once I've started, and I can't stop from starting. And that those two problems combine together to create a vicious circle. Because if I can't stop once I've started and I can't stop from starting, I'm always going to be doomed. All my successes will be temporary. Sooner or later, my mind will give me a reason to go back. And once I go back, I can't stop. And if that resonates, the big book says, then you talk about your solution. If they begin to describe themselves as a compulsive eater, as an addict, as an alcoholic in the big book's case, then and then only do you begin to explain, they'll probably ask you, how you recovered, how you got better. Because if they don't see that they have the same problem that you do, then why would they want to know what you did to stop it? Uh, and I think that's another aspect of it. I mean, Im imagine the jumbled mind that comes into a meeting of OA. And what do they hear when they come? And think about the meetings that you go to and how you can contribute to having them be better meetings by having a clear message when you speak to the compulsive eater about your own history and how that history might reflect their history. I remember my first meeting of OA. It, it was, as I say, seven years before I actually did uh, find recovery. I, I went in and out of recovery and relapse, recovery and relapse, because I didn't accept the body issue. But I remember my first meeting. Uh, I wanted the men's meetings because I was used to that in the commercial program I used to go to, the weight loss program I used to go to. There was no men's meeting. And uh, I was 40 years old and a 70-year-old woman who had completely different life experiences from mine. I was a a professional with a few degrees, 40 years old, a male, and she was um, 70 years old and had been a, worked in the house, uh, worked at home all, all her life, uh, didn't have a, much of an education. And I remember thinking to myself, how can she help me? I need someone like me. And I was a really hard sell. It took three minutes before her story began to resonate with me. I mean, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget realizing, even though I knew that there were other people who were fat, fatter than I am, obese, morbidly obese, much more obese than I was at the time, I did not know that people ate secretly as I did. I did not know that people went into the garbage as I did or that they'd pretend to eat normally in front of others and then gorge themselves later on. 
I, I didn't know how other people got uh, morbidly obese. Uh, and I certainly didn't know that she was exactly like me in her eating behaviors, even though she was almost completely unlike me in her real life, in her, in her ordinary life. I, I won't forget that moment easily because it was a moment of identification that overwhelmed me. I was part of the group. I was no longer on the outside of a group looking in, thinking what I could do for that group or what that group might do for me. Always sort of the, um, I was sort of like, um, for me, I, I, I have always lived as if I were filming my own life. And there's always a part of me that's sort of behind the scenes, sort of directing and sort of figuring out the next move, uh, the best angle and things like that. But for the first time in my life, I was in a group of people who all knew my innermost secrets of which I was most ashamed and who didn't have the problems anymore. I, 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 I won't forget that, I, 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 and especially if I keep on telling the story. So um, I, the big book's instructions for telling it in that way are designed not only for us to be able to tell our story, but designed to have us tell our story in such a way that people begin to understand the distinction between the body problem and the mind problem. Because it's only in, in accepting that distinction and in understanding the body problem, which is something that we do not hear among diets or in weight loss programs in general, which all say you can eat everything in moderation, just a matter of willpower. If you don't understand that body problem and don't accept that body problem, as I did not accept for seven years, you will always relapse. And if we tell people this, our stories in such a way that they understand the body problem and the mind problem and the vicious circle of their uh, combination, then and then only will they begin to identify with the need for the 12 steps, which is the spiritual solution that gets rid of the mind problem. That clarity of, of, of description, which is found in the chapter working with others and found in the big book, in the organization of the big book, how it starts, how it continues, uh, the amount of time that is spent, uh, you know, the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution more about alcoholism. Those are all about the problem. A lot of time is spent on the problem in order to make sure that identification is real that people who join AA in the case of the big book and people who join OA in, the, in our case are people who actually accept that they are one of us. Until they do, if they don't accept that they're one of us, then they won't accept the solution that we offer and their presence at meetings will be pointless. And so we have to be clear. And then the big book says that we have to be clear about how we reached our, our uh, solution. And we have to do it in a way that doesn't antagonize and doesn't offend. Um, the uh, page, um, page uh, 93 talks about that. If they are, uh, don't use specific kinds of words to describe your own God, your own higher power, because you don't want people to believe that this is a religious program. You don't want to be so specific. And one of the things that I've noticed is that in so many different parts of this world, there's one dominant religion, or at least people think there is, and maybe there is. And people 
feel free to talk in their OA meetings about that dominant religion and take it for granted that everyone sort of shares it. And I speak as a person who is as close to an atheist as a, as a humble person can be, uh, a person who tries to be humble anyway. Um, I'm the humblest that there is. <laughs> um, I speak as a person who who is not only not religious, uh, but not not even uh, a believer in any kind of deity. And I can tell you, and, and, and any time I speak, I talk about this issue, and I can tell you every time I speak, wherever I go, anywhere in the world that I've been to talk about Obvious Donovan, someone will come up and thank me for speaking about atheism and agnosticism and finding a way, a, a, a place for them in OA, as the big book does, um, because they feel embarrassed or constrained in talking about their own beliefs their own, uh, and their own belief system because of the religion that they hear in the rooms. And so I, I, it's one example where the big book on page 93 makes very clear not to arouse any prejudice against certain theological terms. The big book also points out on page 93 that for very religious people, they have to be caught up short. And those people might know a lot more about religion than you do, but clearly they can't have been applying it or it wouldn't work. And, and, and so this directness of speech, uh, as well as the wish not to offend, is part and parcel of how we talk to other people. Again, honesty without compassion is cruel. Compassion without honesty can kill. We have to be both compassionate loving and loving, and we have to be honest and straightforward. Um, and then the big book contains some really simple concepts. You talk about it, you talk about yourself, you see if the person identifies with you. Uh, if that person does, you tell them how you uh, recovered. You do it in ways that are not threatening and that are open and inviting, but very direct. And then you leave. And if that person is interested, that person takes the next step. That person is the person who, uh, is, I, I know that it's almost time for me to stop, and I will be stopping in about five minutes. That person is the person who has to take, make the move and say, I am ready, because it's within that desperation that that person is going to find the ability and the power to work these incredibly simple but hard steps. Um, you then meet with that person. And if you read carefully the big book's approach to helping that person, on page 96, it says, having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice. Let him know you're available if he wishes to make a decision, which is step three, and tell a story, step five. But don't insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. The big book's approach to sponsoring, I never use the word sponsor, uh, that, that word came in later, but the big book's approach to sponsoring was to let the person do all the work. You're there to give advice. You're there to, to give your own experience, strength, and hope. But you're not in charge of that person. The big book is clear, page 98. Job or no job, wife or no wife, you simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house, work the steps, in other words. And 
It is up to the individual to work the steps, not up to us. We should not be hand-holding, and the big book is really clear about that, nor should we be controlling. And I would suggest that the big book's whole approach, if you read the chapter working with others, I would suggest that the big book's whole approach is that people are individuals and they recover in individual ways, and that one size does not fit all. Uh, when I sponsor, uh, I make sure that I understand how that person reads and, 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 and absorbs because different people read the big book and they don't even understand it. The words are archaic. Uh, they're put off by some of the language. Um, uh, their first language may not be English. The big book may not be available in, in, in their language. Um, they, they are different and each person reads and remembers and understands differently. And therefore, I will take a person through the steps faster uh, if that person can understand and read, uh, and, and differently if that person can't. I may not read the book with that person. I may explain what the book says to that person rather than force the person to read something that is foreign uh, or that is difficult to understand. People progress at their own rate. And how they progress is entirely up to them. I'm not in charge of them. I don't require them to phone me every day. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't want them to phone me every day because that takes up time. Let them phone someone else if they need support, someone who could use their help, uh, someone who is still suffering. They want to call in their food, let them call in their food to someone who is still suffering so they can be both a model to that person and also get the support that they need. Uh, I don't want anyone to be dependent upon me. I want them to grow uh, uh, dependent upon a higher power, and therefore I don't give them any orders whatsoever. And if they phone me with problems, I say that's a step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine issue. That's where you're going to find your answers because your answer may be different from my answer. The answer that's right for me may be different from the answer that's right for you. I don't know. You have to find it through uh, a relationship with a higher power, and you can only find a relationship with a higher power to the 12 steps. Uh, so going back to the primary purpose, if we and because I, I I know that my time is up, we have to carry this message, and we have to carry it in such a way that people identify, and that we embody what the steps are all about. And what the steps are all about is giving up control and finding our higher power deep within ourselves. The big book says that in the chapter of agnostics, and living according to what our higher power wants us to do. And that can only be discovered from the inside out, not from the outside in. So no control. Treat the person with the love and compassion and the honesty that they deserve and carry the message as best as you can. And I think I'll stop there. And if there are any questions, I'd be happy or, or discussion, I'd be happy to get involved. I'm done. Thank you so much, Lori. <laughs> Uh, really appreciate it. You certainly could have taken more time if you needed. Thank you for your outstanding and compelling presentation this morning. The share ID for today, 13,925. That's 13925. Lori's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. Now we will transition to question and answer segment. If you have a question for Lori, Press star one to unmute. I need your first name, of course, as well as the first letter of your last name. Andrea B. Fran from New Jersey. Andrea B. Fran. Fran, Fran M. Is that correct? Laura. Yes. Laura B. Leah. Zakia J. 
Zakia Christina J. H. Jody E. Christina H. <laughs> Ginger C. Georgia. One minute. Ginger C. Who's from Georgia? Laura B. Laura B. Malky G. Yes. Malky G. Sharon C. Sharon C. Kaylee D. Kaylee, is that correct? Correct. Kaylee B. And I was corrected on some, was the first person Andrea B, or I'm wrong on that? Yes, it's Andrea B. Andrea B, okay. All right, well, that's a good group to start off with. The order I have, Andrea B, Fran M, Zakia J, Christina H, Jody E, Ginger C, Lori, Laura B, Malky G, Sharon C, Kaylee B, everybody please mute except for Andrea B. Please keep your question, you know, to questions rather than comments in the interest of time. Thank you. Go ahead, Andrea. Thank you so much for your service. And Lori, thank you so much for your service. Um, love, the love the share. Uh, the question that came up pretty early on and that stayed with me was this. How do we handle um, relapse from the perspective of the relapser as well as from the perspective of the sponsor who is informed that you know, their sponsee is now in relapse? And I'll pass. Okay, well, thank you. That's a, I, I really appreciate the question. I'll tell you how I handle it. And again, it's because it's a non-directive way. Why do people relapse? Let's look at the possible answers from a big book perspective. There's one that is often a glaring reason that people often don't think about, and that is their bodies. They might not have relapsed. Their bodies might still be ingesting because their plan of eating is not uh, complete. Their bodies might still be indulging in things that cause them cravings so that their bodies are constantly saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. So when I have uh, sponsees who relapse, I say, let's look at your plan of eating. Let's see whether or not you're still eating some things that you shouldn't be eating or indulging in certain eating behaviors that you shouldn't be indulging in because your body might still be alert and might still have those cravings. And so we, we redo the analysis. The second is, I mean, I always say, the only mistakes you can make are not learning from your mistakes. You know, if, if you have fallen off the mountain, it's not as if you fell backwards, you fell forwards, you fell down onto another side because you have the right to, you have the ability to learn from the mistake, uh, whatever mistakes you made. So let's get the plan of eating done. And now let's look at the reasons for your slip uh, or your relapse. What caused the first compulsive bite? Let's go back and let's analyze it. Let's see what you could have done in order to avoid it. You know, there's a wonderful speaker, a Vision for You speaker, who talks about the many different um, um, decisions you make before you relapse. Uh, I, I remember the example of you, you've gone through a drive-through in order which you shouldn't have given, uh, what you shouldn't have ordered, and all the decisions you made that led up to the point that you, you know, you went down a certain road, you decided to uh, uh, look at a certain, in a certain way, you went past a certain place that you knew, you know, whatever it is, you make a whole bunch of decisions. What could you have done to forestall the ultimate decision you made, which is what you were going to order or what you did order and what you ingested? And, and so we analyze that and figure, okay, what strategies could you have adopted um, that, uh, that could have prevented that? And let's work on that. 
And the, and, and the other thing is, where are you on the steps? And why aren't you working the steps as desperately as you have to? Because guaranteed by the end of step nine, you won't, that wouldn't have happened to you. And therefore, let's figure out what, where you are in the steps. Now, unlike a lot of people, this is my approach to people in relapse. First of all, I never fire them. I have never gotten rid of a sponsee. They, they often get tired of me and leave, <laughs> but I never fire them. <coughs> I work with them. I'm always there for them. Uh, and, 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 uh, and I'm always willing, even if they come back the 20th time, to say, let's do those things. But I don't mollycoddle them. I say, this is what you have to do. You have looked at your plan of eating, develop a strategy for the day-to-day temptations, and work the steps as hard as you can. I will then say to them, let's get you sober. Let's get you back on your plan of eating for enough time that your mind is clear enough that you can do a step three and get on to your step four. And, and, and make sure that in your step four, as one of your resentments or as one of your many resentments, you include the issues of the relapses that you've had. That that's a resentment. That's a principle that you put out in, in step four. And then see where you've been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightening in relation to that principle. And I go through the whole thing about that. But generally speaking, with relapses, I look at the plan of eating, and then I look at the mistakes they made, and I get them back on the steps as quickly as they can reasonably get back on the steps and hope that they have a greater sense of desperation than they had before. That's all. That's what I do. Thank you, Andrea, for the question. Fran M., your turn. Star one, you unmute. Thank you, Leah. I know we we ask questions rather than make comments, so I just want to make a very, very brief comment, which is just to thank Lori. You've been there for me so often. I so appreciate not just the way you speak about the program, which is the easy part, but the way you embody the program and how you treat people who call you and how you are broad-minded about the various aspects of this disease. So my question is this. Um, Although I was a binge eater and an overeater and a person who could not handle eating sugar or flour, uh, I am now an under-eater, and I have people I know who share this problem. And one of the issues we have is a physical uncomfortability of feeling full. And if you need to gain weight, and part of the definition of abstinence is working toward a healthy goal weight, you have to at some time feel full. Somehow it was easier for me to sit through the discomfort of not eating when I was overweight and had a compulsive overeating problem. I could do that. But sitting through the discomfort of feeling fat in the interest of time, can we, can we pose a question, please? Yes. So Thank I just you want so to much. see how you would suggest that a person who is having trouble sitting through the discomfort of feeling heavier, which for many of us is the big curse of life, how we get through that. What are the wow. steps we should take in those moments? Thank you. Thank you. That's a great question. I, I, what are the steps we should take? The 12 steps. <laughs> um, because I, I, I know no answer for the individual other than what the individual comes up with, two steps, four through nine. 
um, I mean, you can analyze the plan of eating, and if a plan of eating says that you need more more calories than you're getting, or you need to be you need to gain weight in order to reach uh, what's what we call a healthy body weight in a way, which is really between you and whatever medical professional uh, you you choose to talk about talk with or consult with. Uh, and if the answer, if the plan of eating has to incorporate more, more food, say, uh, or more denser or denser food, um, denser calories, that is something that I would then suggest to a person that uh, they do a step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine on, or a step ten, in the, in, in, which I would call a step ten, where they really do exactly what the big book does, write down as a resentment things like. I am uncomfortable feeling full. I am worried about gaining more weight uh, and eating more than I need to if I eat a little bit more in order to uh, gain, uh, get a healthy body weight. I mean, things like that. And these are things, of course, that, that a bulimic or an anorexic would be putting down right from the beginning, even in their original step fours, because of the, the, there's so much uh, fear uh, and control related to the issue of undereating um, that has to be has to be examined. And as they work through that and they deal with the fears and the fear uh, the fear um, uh, list, um, then they're able to figure out for themselves where they've been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. They're able to figure out for themselves the the need to change in order really to make amends to everyone. Um, for their lives. It's a living amends that they're going to have to make. Uh, they will have to figure out a way that, that to deal with the discomforts that they feel in order to live the kind of life that the people around them uh, uh, need from them. Uh, if you're always uh, thinking about these issues and uncomfortable and unhappy, you will, you will spread that. So for the good of other people, you have to deal with this. So there's no specific answer. I would work with a person individually on that because I don't have the Every person has his or her own reaction to that, her own uh, analysis of that, her own feelings about that, or his own feelings about that. And so for me, the answers will come in steps four through nine or step 10. Best I can do. Tough question. Okay. I'm done. Hello? Thank you, Fran M. Thank oh, you. Okay. Sakia J., your turn. Star one to unmute, Sakia. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I had to unmute. Thank you for sharing, Lori, and thank you, Leah, for bringing Lori, him on. Anyway, my question is, um, maybe I'm missing something, but when a sponsor says that they don't need to hear your story about how you ate, like, because I wrote my story out, and I tried to be very specific, you know, and not write, write a whole, you know, his, you know, dialogue. And then when you write it out and you're ready to share it, they say, well, that's, I don't need to hear it. That's for you, so you know it. And um, I felt like, well, I already, know, I already know it. You know, I'm, I, I thought I was going to share it for you so that you can be, um, you know, 
so you know who you're dealing with. Uh, is there something that I'm missing? That's that's my question. Because I'm not understanding that. That that I don't need well, to share it with the, the sponsor. Well, let, let me. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're telling your story to the sponsor or the sponsor? You, you as a sponsor. Out, I had written out the history of my eating and me trying to control the food. And the sponsor said, I don't need to hear it. That's for you. Ah, okay. So you're the person, you're being sponsored and you're writing the story to your sponsor. Yes. Is that, is that right? Okay. Yes. Well, I don't ask people to tell their story. Uh, if they want to, they can. And frankly, I would listen to them. I, I don't know why anyone would not listen to the story uh, because that gives you a greater insight into that person's uh, behavior and ability and all that. I mean, I, I would never stop a person from, from talking. I would stop a person. I wouldn't stop a person, but there are times when I would say to a person, sounds like you're just rehashing the same thing. And that's what steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are all about. And, and why don't you save that for step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, because that's when your story will have much more meaning. I mean, I, I would do that. But in terms of telling the eating story, um, uh, I, I would certainly listen to the eating story because that would give me insights in how to help that person develop a, a plan of eating that allows them to, um, to uh, refrain, to abstain from indulging in the, in the things that harm them. But, I, I mean, the relationship between a sponsor and a sponsee uh, is, is, is fraught with difficulties. And there are a lot of sponsors around who think that they have, that there's one way of sponsoring and one way of doing things, and it's the way that they were taught, and it's what they do. And I don't take that position. I, I look at the big book's approach to sponsoring, and it's all individualized. And um, there may be times when I will say to a person, you're, uh, you know, I once saw there no way, uh, a skit night, uh, you know, a person going, oh, this happened to me, and this happened to me, and this happened to me. And the person comes up, that person says, do you want some cheese with your wine? You know, uh, W-H-I-N-E. I mean, there are times when I don't want to listen to a wine, and I, I will say that. Uh, in a in a loving and compassionate way, not the way I just said it. Um, but I, I do not understand why a sponsor would say that in the context that you've provided. It, it may be that, that the context is different, that your perception is different from uh, her perception in the, in the specific circumstances. But uh, I would certainly think that telling your story is important. On the other hand, what you talk about um, may not may not have been relevant. I, I mean, what the story was may not have been relevant. The issue of how you eat may not have been an eating story. It may have been a um, uh, you know a biography, an autobiography. So I don't have a specific answer, but I, I would say that it is generally a good thing for a sponsor to listen over a period of time to a sponsee to make sure that they understand the sponsee to be able to help that sponsee better. Uh, that's about the only way I can deal with it. Uh, but on the other hand, there's sometimes when some sponsees should really listen, <laughs> listen and not talk. <laughs> so I don't have a I don't have a specific answer to your situation. <laughs> I don't know if that helps. <laughs> Thank you, Zakia J. Christina H. Your turn. Star one, unmute, please.
Christina H. All right. Hi, this is Chris. Hi, this there is you Christina. Go. <laughs> I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, um, I have actually listened to a vision I cannot tell you for how many years, probably about eight years, and this is the first time I've ever commented. So um, my question is, you touched on it a little bit from the first speaker, but I have been recovered in Alcoholics Anonymous for about 13 years. I know the big book very well. And in OA, through a vision, I have gotten what I'll call sobered up and worked through the 12 steps of of Alcoholics Anonymous numerous times um, with everything I have in me. And I, I always clean up. I work through the steps. And about three weeks in, I end up with this craving beyond my mental control. And I will do everything my sponsor suggests, everything the big book suggests, and I keep picking up. And I am not sure why or what's gone on. I've reached out for tons of help, and I can't find anybody to help me answer, you know, the riddle. Um, So I'm wondering if there's anything that you can say or any advice you can give based on somebody who really has done the work and this keeps happening to. I... Uh, I'd be happy, by the way, uh, you'll get my contact information later. I'd be happy to talk with you individually uh, as well. But the first thing I would do is examine the plan of eating. Uh, uh, What you're describing sounds as if you are still indulging in something that you shouldn't be. If if it's like three weeks and then you've got to have it, there's something going on with your body that might be – that might uh, be the problem. And you might have adopted someone else's plan of eating without really – creating one that's individual for yourself. That, that's one. Uh, the other is that what I, I've sponsored a lot of people, been doubly, triply uh, gifted, as, as it said. And um, I, I, I can tell you that, that uh, one of the things that happens when someone comes from a sort of a, what a, is apparently more black and white program like AA, it's a single substance, it's obvious alcohol in no, in no form, no alcohol in any form, um, and, and sort of a, a, a program with tons and tons of sort of tough love behind it, that they come into the sort of the, the, the warm embrace of OA, and they, there's a feeling of, uh, how do I put it, sort of comfort just being understood and loved within that context, but also a sense that OA can't be as tough. Um, and I heard a speaker, another, the same vision for you person who's talked about the many decisions we make, when asked, what's the toughest addiction to give up? Her answer was the last one. Mm-hmm. And, and my first sponsor was, was in, in AA first and then in OA. And he said, AA gave me 90% of my spirituality, but OA gave me the last 10%. He said, it was only in OA that I really had to plumb down to my absolute depths. And... Um, and so it may be that working the steps in AA, but not working them as hard in OA or feeling that having done it in AA sort of qualifies, um, in a sense, I think that's what I heard you saying. I may be wrong. Um, maybe that's part of the problem as well. I mean, there are two different, uh, every step, every 12-step program is different in two areas. One is what you're, what you're powerless over and the other is to whom you carry the message. And uh, I, have, I have seen people in, who are doubly or triply gifted um, uh, have difficulties within OA, partly because they feel that they've come from a stronger program 
and there's a resentment there. And why, why do I, why am I in this sort of, you know, sort of easygoing program uh, compared to what I was in? And they don't take the steps. Um, they don't do a step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine within OA. Uh, and uh, so the first thing I would do is look at the plan of eating. Uh, there are too many people around an OA who think that what they do is right for other people. And that's contrary to the group conscience of OA. It's found in the, in the pamphlet Dignity of Choice and it's found in the pamphlet Where Do I Start? It's also contrary to experience. My experience, anyway. I mean, I, there are all kinds of things I can eat that other people can't and vice versa. Uh, so I would look first at the plan of eating because that seems to be the problem from what you described. And secondly, what you did, how you did steps four through nine in a way. And thirdly, if you did them fine, are you carrying the message properly? That's what I would look at. And I invite you to contact me individually if you have to help you with the plan of eating. Thank you, Christina H. Great to hear your voice this morning. Jody E., your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Lori, for that wonderful special edition. In my intergroup, which is fairly small, our meetings, we have five meetings a week. One of them is a Vision for You meeting. It doesn't seem to matter. Our meetings don't grow. Do you suggest that we go out to people we know who we see have a problem with food and approach them individually? Or do you suggest that we advertise in the paper or something like that? That's my question. Thanks, Jody. Um, well, I, uh, both. Um, I, mean, I mean, let's let's be clear that anonymity is only at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media communication. And attraction, not promotion, is a public, rela- public relations policy. It's not the individual. Individuals can go out and promote. And the big book tells you how to do that in, in the chapter working with others in a place where there is no uh, AA in the case of the working with others chapter. So I would say that individually, I mean, I make no bones about my being a member of OA in any of the individual relationships that I have, or when meeting a person uh, and, the, and if the topic comes up, uh, there may be a person they know or they themselves may be a person who could use the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. So, uh, you know, I, um, I, I, uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't see why people are, are embarrassed or ashamed to talk about their addiction if they are working towards getting rid of their addiction to a 12-step program. And, and, and so um, uh, I would say that as individuals, we should be doing that. Secondly, uh, advertising and uh, doing public relations at, at an anonymous level uh, to the intergroup is, uh, is, is, is a great thing. Um, I'm, I'm right now, my, my intergroup is involved in similar kinds of problems, and we're doing an intergroup renewal uh, program uh, uh, modeled after what a a long-time uh, OA member has created. Uh, it's gone on in all kinds of intergroups where we're sort of looking at what we are as an intergroup and what we can be doing. And we decided from our own perspective as an intergroup that what's important for us right now is to build up the recovery in the meetings. Because if people come to the meetings and they don't come back, then that's an indication that, I mean, it could be an indication that they don't, they don't need uh, the 12 steps, but it's 
probably more of an indication that uh, they're not hearing the message in a way that grabs them. And so we're going to have a sponsorship workshops. So we, we're having 12-step within workshops. And we're concentrating a lot on that um, because the only way we think we're going to grow uh, and carry a message to people who obviously need us. I mean, the, the, the problems are obvious uh, within our society. Um, we have to we have to become recovered good message carriers in order for OA in our area to grow. So those are the so my answer is all of the above. <laughs> Thank you, Jody E, for your question this morning. Ginger C, star one to unmute, please. Awesome. Thanks for that reminder, Leah, and thank you. Good morning to you both, and thank you both for your service. Um, this is Ginger C. Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Colorado. And Lori, my question is on 20 and 21 in the big book. It talks about the moderate drinker, and then we have a hard drinker, and then 21 mm -hmm. talks about the real alcoholic. And so my question is, I've heard um, people say how they can have a bite of sugar or, you know, a bite of a cookie or, you know, a slice of the cake, not eat the whole thing. And how do you differentiate this different eater that's appearing on the lines? Like, can we work with them? Can we take them through this 12 steps? For me, I had to concede to my innermost self. And I personally don't understand that because once I start, I do not stop. And I'm at the bakery, I'm at the dollar store getting boxes of candy and I'm out of control. But they're on the lines and they're wanting help and I'm just confused by that. So if you have any insight, uh, I would love for your experience. Okay, uh, thank you for that question. Uh, I mean, that pages 20 and 21 make it clear that you could be a moderate drinker and still be a real alcoholic, and you could be a heavy drinker and not be a real alcoholic from the big book point of view. The real alcoholic is defined as someone who can't stop once they start and someone who can't stop from starting. So that's the real definition. And the big book is clear about that. Uh, I, I got into this program, I would say, 150 pounds earlier than I would have if I ever had gone to this program uh, because a member of AA who had been a, a truly gutter drunk, had, you know, been mopped up in the gutters of my hometown, uh, told me that I should take my food as seriously as he took his alcohol. And he gave me permission to take it seriously. Uh, uh, and, and thus I, I joined uh, away earlier than I think I would have. Um, so, but I, I must say, I can have a little bit of sugar that doesn't bother me. What I can't have is a cookie. And to me, the distinction is that my analysis from my plan of eating is that I can't eat sugar and fat together. And I can't eat sugar and salt together because that's what gets me. Uh, but sugar by itself actually makes me a little sick. And I can have a bit and it doesn't bother me. But that's me. That may not be you. But it also may not be the person uh, that you spoke of. And so I let people define their own plan of eating after I talk to them when I sponsor them or when I just work with them. A lot of people have asked me to help them with the plan of eating. And I sort of cross-examine them and make sure that they are being as honest with themselves as they can be. And then as long as they're as honest with themselves as they can be, I say, fine, you got a plan of eating, let's get you sober and let's work the steps. You'll find out whether you're abstinent or not by what your reaction is as you go through the steps. And I, I don't tell people what their plan of eating should be. 
the guy who worked with me in reading the big book right at the beginning, he got absent by just giving up fast foods. And that worked for him. Didn't, it wouldn't have worked for me uh, because I didn't like fast food that much. I, I, I found my own, uh, uh, my own binge foods at home. Uh, so uh, there's a flexibility that's required, but I don't turn down it because I don't turn down people as long. Well, I never turn down people, but as long as they're being honest with themselves, they will find out. The other thing that I have discovered is over time, uh, I've abstained from, uh, well, I first began to abstain from a whole bunch of things, work the steps, reach step nine, the promise came, I didn't want them anymore. But I also found that I had other problems that I had to, uh, I had eating behaviors I had to stop indulging in in order to reach a healthy body weight. And as time went on, there were other foods that I used to be able to eat that I found I could no longer eat. So I gave those up. So uh, again, I, I am, there's, there's no answer other than I say to people, try it if you want. I, I mean, I tell them the story and it's a tragic story. I'll, be, I'll tell it very briefly, but I was asked to sponsor uh, one of the most brilliant guys I knew who was an AA, OA, and NA. And I met with him and I, and I was very flattered. I said, you don't really need me. He knew the big book better than I do. Um, and I said, let's get your plan of eating, get your abstinence. He said, I can't get abstinence. I said, what do you mean? He said, no, I'm hoping if I work the steps, I'll get abstinence. And, and I, I, I said, uh, what would you say to an AA person if he came up to you and said, I, I'm going to continue to drink and hope the steps will get me sober? And I won't use the exact words, but I, I, he said I would tell him to go away. Not quite those words he used. I said, what do you want me to say to you? He said, please help me. So we worked the steps together while he was not abstinent. And uh, he said he'd never done a better step four or five. Uh, he made it amends. And the tragedy is that four years later, he still hadn't gotten abstinent, and he died by suicide. And I'll never forget his funeral. It was one of the uh, it was a tremendously sad moment in, in my life and the life of a whole bunch of others because we absolutely loved this man. And there were members of AA and NA and OA. There are three or 400 people there, all of us members of NA, OA, or AA, who would have done anything to stop that person, to help that person. Uh, but he died alone. And um, so I tell that story and I say to people, abstinence is at the heart of recovery. You can't work the steps honestly if you aren't abstinent. But it's up to you to learn that lesson. So, if you're, so I just go on with the steps with them, and they will learn their lesson, I hope, faster and better than my, my sad friend learned it. Hope that answers your question. Thanks, Ginger C., for the question. Laura B., star one to unmute. Hi, this is Laura B., um, Thank you so much, both of you, for your service. Good morning, everyone. My question is, um, if, if you would please expound upon how you came to your higher power, given that you don't believe in a deity. Oh, I'll be happy to, but I'll do it. I'll do it. That's a whole other subject. Um, I mean, in the end, the big book says we find our God deep within us. And my first sponsor asked me a very simple question. I, I, I've got to tell you, I mean, I'm a... I've studied philosophy. I, I grew up in an agnostic uh, family, third generation. I have never believed in a deity of any kind who can affect any change whatever in the universe of any kind. And I still don't. Um, uh, but my first sponsor asked me a simple question. He said, is there anything that you 
anything more important in the world than you are. And uh, I had young children, two daughters, I still have them at the time. And I knew that love was more important than I was. That was obvious. I died for them. Uh, although, as I joke about it, one of them uh, between the ages of 12 and 16, eh, not so sure. But uh, um, I would die for them. I'd die for my wife. These would be automatic things. So clearly, love is more important than, than I am. And, um, and then I began to think a bit more, and I came to the conclusion that the word that truth, justice, beauty, and love are things that are more important than I am. They will survive me. They will, if I, if I can bring some measure of truth, love, justice, and beauty into the world, whatever I bring will survive me, and therefore is more important than I am. And my sponsor says, that's, that's your God. I said, but that's not God. That's not the person who finds the parking spots uh, that, that people uh, say have found them uh, in, in OA and uh, or found giving them jobs and stuff. And, and he said, no, that's your God. And so I, okay, I said, fine. And two things happened. One is I began to realize that the word direction that's used in, in the steps and in, in the big book, for many people is direction from behind. If they believe in a particular kind of God, their scriptures might push them from behind to do certain things or give them a sense of directions. But for me, a direction was like north. And I had a compass, and that compass had 360 degrees on it. One degree was true north. And that's truth, love, justice, and beauty. And all the 359 other degrees were Laurie's way. And my problem was I kept wanting to go Laurie's way. Sometimes I'd be a degree one or two, sometimes a degree 358, 359. But I would have to strive to be at zero, true north, or 360, true north. And, and so that was one thing. And the other is the passage in the big book in We Agnostics that talks about deep down within us is the fundamental conception of God. Uh, I will find that for you while I talk. That um, they say um, in We Agnostics, um, it may be obscured by calamity. Oh, here it is, page 55. Actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, or child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured, blocked off, by calamity, by pomp, calamity, bad things happen to us, pomp, uh, sense of self-importance, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. Sometimes we have to search fearlessly, searching in fearless moral inventory, but he was there. We found a great reality deep down within us, and the last analysis is only there. And as you read through the, through the steps and, and the description of step four and five, six, seven, and eight, and nine, I think you will see that the big book's image is that we have God deep within us. And it may be my sense of deepest values of truth, love, justice, and beauty, or it may be a specific kind of God that people have grown up with or have developed on their own. But that specific idea of God, whether it's my abstract ideals, are the deepest values I have. They are the ones that give me my meaning in life. And I block them off from myself, the pipeline from my heart to my head has been blocked by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. And all the steps do, all that they do, is to unblock that passageway. And so that if I keep that passageway open and clear by using the steps, four through nine, step 10, 11, 12, I am in touch with my deepest values, for me, it's truth, love, justice, and beauty. For others, it may be a specific kind of God. 
and it wells up in all, and, and my thinking and my actions are completely harmonious with what I most deeply believe in. And that's all the steps do. And so that's my higher power. Hope that answers your question. Thank you, Laura B., for the question. Malky G., your turn. Hi, good morning. It's Malky. It's Malky G. from New Jersey. Thank you, Laurie, so much for your clarity. My question I have for you today is when working with sponsees and with newcomers, um, my goal is I carry the message that I have received from working the steps. And the only message I really have to carry is the one that God had gifted me with. That's the only thing I have to offer to others. I can't give what I didn't experience through this book and working the steps. Um, on the other hand, there are many people that are newcomers, and specifically I'm talking about a home group, a home group that the message I'm carrying just is very conflicted with the message they want to hear and they're interested in. But I still want to give service to newcomers and my home group. So what is the difference between I want to carry my message and I need to be open-minded to other people and give service? Can you clarify the difference between giving service uh, or carrying my message? Well, there are a lot of <laughs> wow, a lot of different issues that I'm, I'm hearing. The first thing, my first answer would be to do what I call a step ten or steps four through nine on that home group, and I've done that. I mean, believe me, I've I've had those issues, and 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 uh, early on in my big book career, I was a big book thumper uh, and and nothing else would be good enough. And I was always in conflict with people in, in my group who used the steps in other ways. And I had to do my own step 10 on, on the individuals and on the, on the issues that were doing it. They were resentments and they were bothering me. And the only way I could get some clarity is to uh, work the steps on that and figure out where I had been selfish, uh, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened and where I could, uh, what, what amends I have to make. Um, so from my point of view, uh, what I discovered for myself, I'm not suggesting that that's true for you, but I'm just saying what I discovered for myself was that the way in which I spoke and the fact that I spoke with such certainty um, was so off-putting to a lot of other people that I was doing them more harm than good in the way I was speaking and that I had to find a different way of speaking. I had to speak uh, uh, with more understanding and compassion um, and, and understanding of how they listened because people don't hear things. I mean, I found, for instance, that because I'm a man in a predominantly uh, female um, uh, fellowship, that just my being a man with the history of abuse that so many people in our fellowship have had from men, um, that when I spoke, I was listened to in a different way from, from, from many women, uh, by many women. And therefore, I had to moderate how I, how I spoke just because uh, I'm a man. Just, that's just as an example. Um, so my, my answer is always, that's what I would, I would do a step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine in order to make sure that what my part in this was and how I could be as good as possible. Um, always knowing that how I speak is as important as what I say. Um, the other thing is the distinction between service and carrying the message. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of service that goes on, you know, 
chairs and coffee and, uh, uh, you know, the stuff that the intergroup and things of that sort, which exists only to keep the group alive. Uh, and that's different from carrying the message, which is step 12. So there's a lot of service work that is uh, designed to help the group uh, carry the message, which is different from actually carrying the message. Uh, in, in a group I was in years ago, there was a big fight between the big book thumpers and the 12, OA 12 and 12 thumpers. And we would have business meetings, and depending on who came to that particular meeting, the vote would be six to three or four or four to five or something like that, and whether we would be studying the big book or we'd be studying the OA 12 and 12. It was terrible. Um, and we finally decided, in the spirit of the concepts, so we talked about uh, the 12 concepts of OA, we talked about substantial unanimity. We created a committee of two big book thumpers and two OA 12 and 12 thumpers and said, go away and come back with the unanimous decision. Well, it took us some time. They came up with a format that we all accepted. So we wouldn't allow there to be a, a, a split vote. I mean, it was, it was two and two. So that's the other thing. I mean, sometimes a business meeting uh, to discuss issues relating to that might be of some value if the, if, the, if the group itself is fractious. Because what you don't want is for just majority rule. That's very dangerous. We're a God-driven uh, fellowship. You know, our group conscience speaks through substantial unanimity. And, uh, and the only way we can do that is by being open to others. I have come to the conclusion, by the way, that what works for me doesn't necessarily work for others. Some of the most important people in my life in OA do not use the big book to, uh, and have recovered. And therefore, I know that even though I think the big book is the greatest thing since sliced bread, sort of makes some food, um, uh, not everyone uses it the same way that I was taught to use it. And even among my, my own big book thumper friends, we all have different interpretations of the big book. So, uh, so there are many different approaches to working the steps. And my experience includes my knowledge of other people, not just my own story, but my knowledge of other people and how they've recovered. And I think what, come, what it comes down to is not a specific way of doing the steps, but the fact that it's life and death for us. That's what, you know, that we carry the message harder and, fat, and, and more powerfully because we're, we're desperate to carry the message. And we, we're abstinent and we work the steps. And, and, and so I'm, I'm very open to other people. Uh, and and, uh, and that's, I guess that's my answer. My answer is ultimately I would work through a um, step four, five, six, seven, eight, nine on that issue or step 10. Because the answer for you may not be the answer that I would come up with for myself. I hope that helps. Thanks, Malky G, for your question this morning. Sharon C, your turn, star one to unmute. Yes, hi, this is Sharon C from New Jersey, and I want to thank you, Leah, Leah and Laurie, for your service. Um, my question was actually answered, but I, I thought of another one real quick. Um, <laughs> I was wondering how, uh, how I can gain confidence enough to speak on the meetings, because I listened to the vision meetings every morning and I used to speak a little bit but it just it actually gives me like panic disorder what well, not really but um mm. panicky I I have mild traumatic brain injury I have a memory problem I can't remember 
what my point was half the time. I don't have a problem one-on-one, but I do with, with a lot of people. So. That's well, uh, I, I, I don't have many answers. The, the same answer that I give to almost every other question is I would do a step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine on that issue. Um, because, I mean, I would, a, a resentment can be a principle. And the principle is any fact that you wish were not true, because that's what you resent. It's, it's true. So, for instance, as a principle, based on what you've just said, I would write down, I have a particular memory issue. I'm afraid to speak in, 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 in public. I have, get panic attacks. Even though I'm good one-on-one, I cannot speak in a group. You know, things like that, writing that down and using the, 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 the big books approach, you write down why that bothers you and you write down how it affects you. And then you figure out where you've been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened uh, and working out your fear form. Uh, what would your higher power have you be? And, and, you know, your higher power might have, might in the end, in the fear uh, issue, you might come to the conclusion, my higher power would have me be someone who dedicates herself to one-on-one encounters and doesn't worry about speaking out loud. Or my higher power would be a person who, despite her fears, goes and tells a message for the sake of those who still suffer. And there's no one right answer there. It's whatever your higher power tells you at the time, whatever you sort of gain. Because once you know how to overcome your fears to figure out what, what kind of person your higher power wants you to be, because that's the fear, the fear of prayer is, please remove this fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be, then you can do that. And you do it knowing that that's what your higher power is. Your fear becomes a strategy for life. So I don't know the right answer, but I only know how to get to the right answer. I hope that helps. Thank you, Sharon C., for your question. Kaylee B., star one, ton mute. Morning, everybody. Kaylee B., just outside of Minneapolis. Um, Lori, you have mentioned um, recovery as neutrality around food. I've heard that in your multiple uh, big book studies as well, too. My question for you is, do you or have you ever had moments where you have felt deprivation or a sense of not being part of the group because you're not eating the same foods as everyone else around you? And if so, what are the specific actions that you do when you start to have that feeling, maybe even after 25, 26 years of recovery? Thank you. It's an interesting question. The answer is yes, there have been times. And when those times occur, I know it's time for me to do an inventory, step 10, step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, done in the context of recovery, because something else is going on in my life and I'm not aware of it. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, for me, that has been the, the way in which I keep my recovery is by continuing to do inventories. And when I say step 10, there, there's a whole difference of opinion within among big book numbers as to what that means. But at least it's pretty clear that one way or the other, we should be doing what we did in steps four through nine at some point. I believe it's to be done whenever there are any warning signals. Other people would believe it's to be done every night. But whatever it, whatever it is, if I begin to feel that way, I know I've about reached the bottom. And it's time for me to do something really drastic because that feeling of deprivation is going to turn into the next bite. 
the next compulsive bite. So for me, that, that, that has occurred pretty rarely, but it has occurred, and I know that I should have done a step 10 a lot earlier than I did. <laughs> and, and I would include as a resentment my feeling of deprivation uh, because that's a principle that I wish were not true. So that, that's my answer. I have occasionally felt that. Um, thankfully, not as often as, um, as, as, uh, as I used to feel. Well, never as often as I used to feel. And when I do, it means I should have seen the warning signs way ahead of time. And I didn't. And I learned from that. I hope that helps. Thank you, Kaylee B., for the question. Lori, it's 1014 Eastern Time. I have time for a few more questions. Would you like me to yeah, invite sure. a few more? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Anyone else have a question this morning for Lori? Star one to you. Hi, Brenda A. a. Hannah. Brenda A. Margaret D. Hannah S. Kim, Hannah S. Kim T. Kim T. Who was before Kim? Loretta H. Loretta H. And there was someone that began with the letter M. Carter B. Carter B. Okay. Very good. I think I got everybody there. Okay. Christina J. Everyone else, please mute. Christina J., your question. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Lori. Um, amazing. Amazing. I'm going to be referring a lot of my sponsees to your podcast. Um, my question. The, when I first came into program, I, uh, I had a real sadness, a grief about never having sugar again because it had been, you know, my best friend, the thing that had got me through everything. I just couldn't imagine living life without it. And, of course, that was because I hadn't done the 12 steps yet, hadn't gotten any kind of a psychic change. Um, and it just was astounding to me that someone would ask me to give up something that I knew was killing me, but at the same time it was providing a deep, deep comfort. So uh, long story short, I relapsed many, many, many times. So when I have a sponsee that says they're having grief about the sugar, would I, I can't make the assumption they're not ready yet because they're hopeless. They've come to me for help. They're listening. They're realizing they have an issue. But how can I guide them gently through this time of grief with this loss that they're feeling around this substance? And that's my question. Thank you. Well, I don't tell my sponsees that they have to give up sugar because sugar may not be their drug. Um, it may be sugar in combination with fats, as it is with me, uh, or it may be sugar. I don't know. Uh, so first of all, I, I ask my sponsees to be as honest as they can. But if they come to the conclusion that they can't have anything with sugar in them, uh, then uh, I tell my story. Actually, the story of the friend I told earlier who died by suicide, because I think it's important to understand the importance of being abstinent while working the steps. I think we're the only 12-step fellowship in the world that somehow says it would be ideal to be abstinent before you work step four. I, I can't imagine a 12-step fellowship in the world that wouldn't say, get abstinent before working step four. How can you be rigorously honest if you, don't, if you aren't abstinent? But um, I would say that one of the things I ask for people to do when I sponsor them is not just develop a, a, a plan of eating, 
that's right for them, not right for me, but right for them, uh, because uh, I, I, there's just too many people who want to impose a plan of eating on others. And, and it's not fair. It's contrary to group consciousness of OA. And more than that, it may mean that people restrict themselves in ways that they don't have to, and that they're still eating, indulging in things that they shouldn't be indulging uh, because they haven't eliminated those things. So at any rate, I say, let's get a plan of eating. Let's get you your day-to-day strategy for handling the decision-making that can lead to the first bite. But also, let's work out a timeline for working the steps as quickly as possible. So if people say, oh, I feel so deprived, I can't give this up, and, you know, the kiss of death, I say, I guarantee you that if you are abstinent and work the steps, by the end of step nine, you won't want to eat sugar. So you're in a race. You're in a race between the time you get abstinent and the time you finish step nine. How can we work the steps as quickly as possible to get you through step nine? And again, some people can work the steps faster than others. And I get them through as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and I say to them, it's like, treat it like a diet. You're not giving it up for the rest of your life. You're giving it up until you don't want it anymore. And, and that's guaranteed by, the, uh, by step nine. So let's work out a plan whereby you work the steps as quickly as you can. And to me, that, that's the answer. If they still say, I can't do it, uh, I say, let's try. Uh, if, if, what do you need to keep you abstinent each day? Do you want to phone in your food? Phone in your food. Find someone who could use a phone call from you. Phone in your food. Do what a lot of people do in this program. Phone in every time you're going to eat. Phone in if you're going to change your food. Phone in this. If, you, if you're going to eat at 4 in the morning, if you're going to eat a donut, Call me before you eat. Don't call me afterwards. I don't want to talk to a drunk. But call me before, and I will come down and talk with you and, and get you through that, because I think that's anything. I think that's what people in AA would do. And no one takes me up on that, but I would, I would do that. If they continue to relapse, I say, let's look at your plan of eating. Let's look at a timeline. Let's do this, whatever. Sooner or later, and I say, you reach your bottom only by stopping uh, digging. And some people continue to relapse and some people don't. It's not up to me. It's not my responsibility. It's theirs. Um, and and uh, I just help them as much as I can. And that's the best I can do. That's my answer. I wish it, I I wish it. it were a more hopeful one. Okay. Very Thanks. helpful. <coughs> Thanks, Christina J. Brenda A. Star one to unmute. Uh, Good morning, and thank you both for your service. Um, I am new to Visions for You. I have been at OA meetings since March of 2018, uh, 19 rather, and I'm happy to say that I am currently, I've been abstinent since um, January 1st of this year, at which point I finally got a sponsor with whom I'm very happy working. It's been a long road, but I had to adopt the we versus the I. My question is, my sponsor, I had been um, on Weight Watchers. I've been a Weight Watcher um, member, let's say fully recovered for 23 years, and I I, I go in to be weighed once a month. My sponsor is saying that the food plan is fine, but the ideology of Weight Watchers is in direct um, opposition to what OA is advocating. 
So now I have to give up a plan of eating that I've used for 23 years and adopt a food plan. Um, We've also agreed, which has been fine with me, I've given up sugar and flour, but I'm very conflicted. Which is the right way? Um, I'm hearing that, Lori, that you're saying I can have one. My food plan is my food plan, not my sponsor's, but I'm very conflicted about what to do uh, vis-a-vis going to Weight Watcher meetings or being weighed in, more specifically being weighed in. Thank you for your answer. Well, uh, I'm afraid that I do not believe that a sponsor, I I believe that the big book says that a sponsor should not tell you what to do. Uh, I I think the big book says that any time you become more dependent upon a sponsor than you do upon a higher power, um, you're you're in danger. So I do my best not to tell my sponsees what to do. I make very strong suggestions. I say, if I were you, I would do this, but that's it. I don't think necessarily, I, I personally think that the, uh, let me put it this way, the, the diet that Weight Watchers have, I am not familiar with the most recent version of it, I, mm-hmm. but, but it certainly seems to indicate that you can have your cake literally and eat it. Um, and that certainly doesn't, that doesn't fit with my experience of, uh, of uh, you know, I, I can't eat moderately certain kinds of foods. But I know some people in OA who can, okay? Um, they seem to be able to do it. They weigh and measure, and they can eat certain foods in moderation, and they don't get uh, cravings. Certain foods that I can't, and they don't get cravings. You know, Bernie, the guy I mentioned right at the beginning, we would go out to eat sometimes, and he'd have a pat of butter. For me, that pat of butter is absolute doom. It's the first sip of alcohol for me. And yet for him, have a pat of butter today and not have any for the next 20 days. Uh, I wouldn't do anything to him. So for, for you know, uh, it may be, I, I'm not saying it is, but it may be that for you, the Weight Watcher diet uh, 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 works. And, that which, and, and there are two possibilities. One is that, you don't need OA because Weight Watchers works for you. Uh, second, uh, uh, that all you need is a support group and a good diet. And the other is that if you do need OA, figure out what it is that you need OA for. And if, if, if it is to get from the, uh, away from the feeling of deprivation, not uh, that, you, that you know, the restriction of the diet that, uh, that you are on from Weight Watchers is such that um, you're, uh, you're always feeling tempted to have more or different uh, then OA is, you know, OA, OA will get rid of that. Um, the 12 steps will get rid of that. Um, you know, I, I mean, I would listen carefully to the experience of another member who says, boy, you know, you're, you're, you're really running with a loaded gun there. Um, but I don't find the idea of weighing yourself once a month, which is what I do, um, to see how I'm doing. Um, and, uh, uh, is, is a bad thing. And uh, I would, for me, I would do a step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine as you, as you work the steps and put down as a, as a principle things like, I don't know what to do about my Weight Watchers meetings. Uh, I feel the diet I'm on is good enough, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I would, I say to sponsees that, you know, people have this idea of red, yellow, and green light foods, red and foods you can't possibly have, yellow are foods you have to moderate with and be careful about, and, and green is foods you can eat. And I would say that when you're working the steps, 
put all the yellow stuff into the red. Uh, just don't, don't monkey with that. By the time you finish working step nine and you have the neutrality with food, you'll know or you can do an analysis as to whether or not any of those yellow light foods are, are worthy of bringing back uh, or not. Uh, then because you'll have a clarity of mind. So I, I think I've answered your question. I hope I have. Um, I don't think there's anything necessarily contrary. Uh, uh, it, it, the thing that's contrary in Weight Watchers uh, is simply that uh, you can go to Weight Watchers and not have the kind of mind that sends you back to the foods that you've given up. Weight Watchers is a support group. It has a particular kind of diet. And, and, uh, and in OA, way, uh, particular kinds of diets don't necessarily work for, for everyone. Uh, they, they certainly didn't work for me. Uh, so uh, uh, we have to find our individual plan of eating. Uh, it has to be related to a healthy body weight. And then we have to work the steps because we have the mind problem that keeps sending us back to, to the slipping. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Brenda A., for your question this morning. Hannah F., your turn. Star one to unmute. Hannah F. Hi, this is Hannah F. Yes, please go ahead with your question. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Lori. I always appreciate hearing you. Um, I've heard you many times, and it's always very refreshing. My, my question is about this. Uh, bearing in mind that we have an allergy of the body, so we therefore need a plan of eating, and bearing in mind that the big book does talk about getting outside help when people need it, I don't know if this is within your experience, but I'm sure you've had it with other people that you've sponsored or worked with. What role would you say, you know, there's many people in, in programs for addiction who've been through a, a pretty fair amount of trauma, whether it's abuse or neglect, whatever it is, that seems to, you know, often the addiction is medicating the trauma. And again, not, you know, not minimizing the need for, whether it's sobriety or whether it's a plan of eating in a way or whatever, it, it, whatever the abstinence is defined as, what role would you say that trauma plays in all of this? And what do you suggest for people that have that problem? Well, that's the subject of a whole, a whole other talk. Actually, I, I once gave a, a, a special edition on, on issues relating uh, to, to abuse uh, it's a it's a very deep issue. Uh, I I am so lucky in my life not to have suffered the kind of uh, abuse that friends of mine and many friends of mine in this program have have suffered, um, and and I can only give you their experience. Um, first of all, therapeutic help is is can you know can can be helpful, and it would be an outside issue for me to comment on whether or not someone should be taking medication or not. It's not. That's not my job. It's not any expertise or any of that sort. Um, I can only say that the friends of mine who have recovered in the program, who have suffered abuse, whom I know, some have had uh, therapists, uh, some have not. They've all benefited uh, from steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine by working through, um, by putting down the people who caused them abuse and the effects of that abuse as resentments in their resentment form 
and figuring out uh, in relation to that where they've been uh, selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Now, what's important is defining what selfish and dishonest mean. I mean, it's pretty obvious of a self-seeking also, but frightened is frightened, but selfish from the big book perspective um, means much more than what it means in the dictionary. The big book is clear that selfish means self-willed. Where have I been self-willed? And self-will often can be as simple as wanting to change the unchangeable past, living in the world of what ifs and if onlys. And that self-will applies to anyone who suffered difficult things that have happened to them in their lives uh, or, or frustrations, let alone traumas and abuses. They want to live in a different world and they live in a world in which life would have been different if they hadn't suffered whatever it is that they suffered, the horrible things that they've suffered. So self-will, can, uh, and, and which is what selfishness is in the big book, is, is often a huge defective character that people have to work on. Dishonest is also important, because in the big book, the examples are basically lying, cheating, and stealing. But dishonesty can be not telling the truth to others, or, or not telling the truth when the truth should be told. And very often, the harm that people have done as a result of abuse is not talking about it to the people they love and not telling the truth about how they, uh, how they feel so that their, their distance and their lack of intimacy and things of that sort um, have, have been sort of, it's, uh, I've always called it a gift that keeps on giving, but you know what I mean? It, it's, it's replicated. It keeps going on. And uh, I've met many people who talk about that. And sometimes um, it's lying to yourself about reality. That can be dishonesty too. If you're living in a world of make-believe in which the only world you can live in because of the trauma is a world in which the trauma didn't happen, then you're living in an unreal world and you're lying to yourself about reality. You cannot change the past. And then and, and, and self-seeking is even harder, but it's basically how it makes me feel. And often the self-seeking is I feel like a nothing. I feel like an embarrassed, humiliated person who doesn't deserve to exist. And, with, and, 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 and that feeling that people have, which is, of course, completely unwarranted, but that feeling that many people get is something they have to identify as well. The other thing that I can say, and, and so the, you work it through, you work through your fears, your sex conduct issues as you work steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and then the amends you make are the amends that will ultimately uh, give you uh, some measure of serenity because guaranteed by the end of step nine, you'll, you'll have this tremendous miracle uh, occur. The other thing I say to people is that based on the experience of my friend, people who have suffered trauma and abuse in their lives are better able to carry the message than anyone I know. They can transform the horrible things that happened to them into a clear message, which is these horrible things happened to me and I don't eat over them anymore. And if you have horrible things that happen to you, you could look at me as an example of someone who can use the past to the advantage of others. And, you know, the big book promises us we will see how our experience, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And the big book says, I think it's page 124, uh, our darkest past is the greatest gift we have. So the, the promises that we will not regret the past or wish to shut the door and it become clear, those of us who have suffered the greatest trauma can carry the most powerful message. 
And so they can transform the horrors into something that could help someone else. And that's, that's, I would never call that a gift because no one should suffer the traumas uh, that many people in our program have suffered, but at least they can transform that into something that can help someone else. And so I hold out that hope and I talk about that. Now I may say that there are other big book companies who say, it was done to you, it's not something you should, um, you know, you may resent it, but it's not your fault and don't talk about it. And I, I happen to disagree with that, but that's uh, based on my own experience with friends of mine who have suffered. But uh, there's it, different approaches, but certainly therapy is something that is an outside issue and I would never call it down. Never, ever, ever, or medication, ever, ever, ever. It's not, not up to me to talk about that. Hope that helps. Tough Thank issue. you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Hannah F., for the question. Margaret D., star one to unmute. Margaret D. Okay, perhaps she had to step away. Loretta H., are you still available with a question? Loretta H., hey, thanks, Leah, and mm-hmm. Lori, thank you for your healing and just rewarding, rewarding message. Um, my question is, and I think I heard you correctly, uh, My hearing I'm old, so my hearing isn't the greatest, that <laughs> I could, um, I, I've been texting my food now for 18-plus um, years and have been... Um, with God's grace, absent for that long. And I still like to text my food because it keeps me accountable and honest. But you said, I, I think you said, it would or is possible to send it to a suffering and struggling fellow to help them. Is that correct? I, that's what I recommend to sponsees. I say, why oh, waste your good. time on, on, on me? Why waste your time on me? Find someone who still suffers. Ask that person if you can have daily contact with that person. You're then doing a favor to your to that person. You're helping that person as well as helping yourself. I don't need I don't need the daily stuff. I don't want to hear it. I, I have too many oh, other people okay. to help. Oh, great! Because I never knew you could do that. I always thought you had to do it with another recovered person. Oh, there's no so, there's no uh, well, there's no there's no rules. <laughs> I I went to Catholic school. <laughs> End of story. Thank you very much, and I loved your step study. It it revealed so much for me and helped me on this path. So thank you, and thanks everybody. Thank I pass. Thanks, Loretta. Kim T. Star one to unmute. Hi, Lori. Thank you for your share. And you touched on this a little bit a couple minutes ago, but as I'm going through my step four and looking at my core character defects, can you define in yeah define your take on the difference between selfish and self-seeking? Uh, okay, it's not easy, and you won't find it in the dictionary. First of all, selfish <laughs> from the big book point of view is self-willed. It's wanting to be in charge of the world. It's wanting the world to go your way, okay? 
Uh, and, and that's the big book is clear about that. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of all of our problems. We want to be the director, the writer, the producer of the play. Okay, that's, that's clearly selfish. And I, I'm beginning to want to use the word self-willed rather than selfish, because I don't think the word selfish bears the quality that it used to bear in, in the old days of the word. Okay. Self-seeking, it seems to me, is more how I feel about myself. I'm searching for myself, self-seeking. I'm seeking myself, my sense of, of self, in the incidents that define me rather than in my relationship with a higher power. So it's more about me and how I feel about myself than how I want the world to be different for my sake. Okay? So where I'm self-seeking is, like, let's like, like take, uh, we just talked about trauma. Let's say I put the abuser down. You know, I, I, as I say, I was not abused. But let's say I, I had an abuser, I put the abuser down. Self-willed is, I didn't want it to have occurred. I mean, as simple as that. Uh, it, it may be more, but at least it's that. Self-seeking would be, I feel like a piece of dirt. Okay? So that's the, the oldest distinction I can give you. Does that help? Hmm. It does. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Kim. That's my interpretation, by, by the way. There are others who have a different interpretation. That's my interpretation. Thank you. And our final question for the morning comes from Carter B. Carter, star one to unmute. Good morning. My name's Carter. I'm uh, calling you from Seattle. Uh, my question Hi. is, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. My question is, is it appropriate for a sponsor to not work with me because I take too long to complete an assignment. All right, I, I have a couple of answers. Um, there are, there is no answer to your question because appropriate or not appropriate is is not. A, it's a judgment issue, and I'm not going to judge the relationship between you and a sponsor. I don't give assignments uh, other than to say, you know, I'd like you to read this, or, or something like that. Uh, and I don't have a particular way of working the steps with people, although I take them through the big book. Um, it depends on how well they read and, and they retain what they've read. Uh, that depends on what the nature of what I do with them. Sometimes I, because they can't read well or they can't retain well, I may have them, I may read the book with them. And sometimes if they retain everything, I may just say there are just a couple paragraphs I want to isolate. Um, so I, I don't use the word assignments, um, uh, but I also am very clear with people who, I mean, sometimes assignments can be busy work to some people. They, they say, I, I just want to do it. Let me get on to it. And assignments stand in the way of getting on to what they should be doing because the answers come in four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. That's where you get your recovery. Everything up to that point is all sort of in your mind. You, you, know what the pro you figure out what the problem is in step one. You figure out what the solution can be in step two. Step three is you make a decision to search for the solution. But four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are the action steps where you actually find the solution. So if assignments stand in the way of getting to steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, I say maybe there's something to think about. But it's also the time when I, I can say to people, why aren't you doing step four? Or why is step four taking so long? 
Or when are you going to schedule a step five, either with me or with someone else? Or why haven't you made your amends? Because you're going to be in trouble if you don't. So, you know, I think it's well within the purview of, of any sponsorship to sort of point out, my experience is, is that if you don't work the steps quickly, you're going to relapse. Uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with saying, uh, why aren't you completing something? What's, what's standing in your way? Is this not the most important thing in your life? Are you not, are you not treating it as a life or death issue? Because it is. You know, you know in, in, in the early history of AA shows that people would recover in days. Um, and they, they get sober, they get free of the physical addiction, uh, uh, you know, and they'd immediately go out and, and work the steps as quickly as they, can, as they could. And um, so it's quite appropriate to say, why is it taking you so long? I, I must say that's an appropriate question seems to me, um, but it may be that the assignments are standing in the way. I don't know. That's something you have to work out. But, so there's no one right answer to your question. Does that help? I hope it helps. <laughs> Let, let's take the silence as a response that it will help. Thank you, Carter B., for your question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Lori. It's always a pleasure and enlightening to spend the morning with you in this way. Thank you so very much for your presentation thank this you. morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. We're going to close the way we always close from a reading on page 164. You'll notice that it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.